the UK needs to build more new homes to meet the needs of a growing and aging population. At the same time, there is an increasing recognition of the need to minimize the environmental impacts of development and contribute to wider social, economic, and community objectives. What are the opportunities and challenges in the delivery of sustainable new housing development? Welcome to Insight for Impact, the podcast from SQW featuring conversations with experts on the issues that matter in economic and social development. Welcome to the first episode for 2022 of Insight for Impact. I'm Joe Duggett. Today, we're going to focus on housing and specifically the opportunities and challenges related to the delivery of sustainable new housing development. I'm joined by two experts in this area, my colleague, Andy Smith, and a close associate of SQW, Philip Jackson of Daedalus Environmental. Firstly, to introduce Andy, he is a director of SQW and leads our land and property team, a RICS regulated surveying practice within the firm that advises public and private sector clients on the planning, viability, funding and delivery of development. He previously worked for national house builders, buying development land and securing planning permissions. So he's very familiar with the challenges of bringing forward sites successfully for new housing. Andy, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Joe. Uh, Thanks for asking me to be on the podcast. I'm really delighted to be here to discuss an increasingly important area of work for SQW. And a really important aspect of this work is collaborating with partner organisations. So I'm delighted that uh, Phil is able to be here with us today. Thanks, Andy. Phil's been advising developers, landowners, the public and construction sectors on sustainable development issues for 20 years. He's also a founding director of Habitability, a new entrant to the housing sector, which is rapidly building a reputation for innovation in approaches to housing delivery with sustainability at its heart. Phil, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Joe. Uh, It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Uh, Hello, Andy. I'm delighted to be here and given the opportunity really to discuss these issues at what probably is one of the most vital times ever. Um, At Daedalus, we're fortunate to be embedded in all of these discussions, providing advice and support to many different stakeholders across public and private sectors over the last couple of decades. Just to pick up on what Andy said, I think over the last four or five years, we've seen a lot more collaboration in this sector to drive innovation and new ideas. So hopefully we can contribute some useful insights today. Can we kick off then with what I know is not an easy question? But actually, what do we mean by sustainable development in the context of planning for and delivering new housing? Andy, do you want to kick us off on this? Um, Thanks, Joe. Um, Yes, as you say, not not an easy question, partly because there are just so many aspects to sustainable development. But perhaps one good place to start would be the definition provided by the International Institute for Sustainable Development, uh, who defines sustainable development as development that meets the needs of the present without compromising the ability of future generations to meet their own needs. It's a definition that's been around for some time, but I think it's worth worth unpicking a little bit. So so the first part of the definition is is around the the ability to meet the needs of the present. And in that context, it's really important that we recognise that in the UK, that brings in the 300,000 homes per annum target, which the government has set, uh, which they believe is necessary to meet the housing need. Um, The second part of the definition immediately points us towards the use of resources and managing development to minimise environmental impact. Um, But I think it's also worth saying that increasingly sustainable development 
and sustainable development charters, which we are involved in helping to draft and bring together, also recognise aspects of of social and economic sustainability, particularly the need for inclusivity, the the ability for local people to access um, the benefits of development. And and whether we're talking about environmental, social or, or economic sustainability, I think it's really important that we adopt a whole life cycle approach. So through the design and planning of a development, through the construction stage, which is where a lot of effort is focused, but increasingly recognising that actually truly sustainable development means that you facilitate people living in an ongoing sustainable way during the occupation phase. And finally, at the end of a a building's life, um, can it be repurposed? Can it be reused? Uh, Probably worth just defining some of the aspects of uh, environmental sustainability. Um, Of course, um, reduction in carbon emissions, improving air quality, water usage and and flood alleviation. And the, um, the very topical question of land use, whether development should be focused on brownfield or greenfield land. That's a very comprehensive answer from Andy, and I've got nothing more to add other than perhaps to refer back to the original definition of the Institute. I think if every decision we made in in construction referred back to aligning with the outcomes that are implied by it, we'd be in a very different position. That definition is around 35 years old this year, and we're still debating what it means. I think, bluntly, we need to leave the world in a much better place than we find it. If what we build doesn't do that, then we probably shouldn't be building it. Great, that's that's really helpful. And there's a there's a lot there to consider. We could probably devote a whole series of podcasts actually to talking around those various different issues. Picking up one of the specific points there, Andy, you mentioned considerations related to land use and particularly the difference between developing new housing on brownfield sites. So broadly previously developed land that's now vacant or derelict and greenfield which is land that has not previously been built upon i think that's really important both directly in terms of housing delivery but also more broadly in how that then fits into wider leveling up agenda and the varying contexts across the country can you say a bit more about the issues here and how this relationship or the issues between brownfield and greenfield ties into and influences sustainable development considerations. So what I would say is brownfield first makes absolute sense. Of course, we should be seeking to reuse land that has been previously developed wherever we can. Fully support that. But I think we have to recognise the limitations of that approach. First of all, brownfield land is very often more expensive to develop. The cost of remediating that land, demolishing buildings and bringing it back into a fit state for redevelopment can often be quite high. Another aspect is around site size, and often people use sort of brownfield, greenfield to mean as a shorthand for small sites versus large strategically planned developments. Uh, and often that is true, uh, And um, but often smaller brownfield sites, it can be quite limiting as to what you can actually do with that site. Often a lot of the sustainability measures are geared around building performance rather than being able to master plan a whole comprehensive community type approach. Uh, and, and thirdly, of course, the um, there is only a, a very finite amount of brownfield land available and our ability to meet the 300,000 homes per annum target, we simply cannot achieve that on brownfield alone. 
So is greenfield development bad? Well, no, not necessarily. As I've said, we don't really have a choice other than development on greenfield site if we're to meet the needs of the present. So obviously, if we are going to release greenfield land, it has to be in the right place, choosing sites that minimise the negative environmental impacts. It should be of the very highest standards, both in construction and design, and benefiting on the opportunities afforded by the scale. And I would very strongly advocate a whole community approach. Phil, do you have anything to add? I agree with you, Andy. Um, we're certainly not going to be able to build 300,000 homes per annum using Bramfield land. But if we are going to use undeveloped sites, we, we need to get the best possible outcomes from them. And for me, I think enabling those outcomes also means building at a scale where we can be far more creative with the provision of infrastructure, all sorts of infrastructure, whether that's social infrastructure, zero carbon energy systems, in the delivery of comprehensive ecological improvement, which you mentioned, in the way new communities are financed and, and how we build them in terms of the latter, for example, you know, in order to adopt advanced forms of MMC, off-site manufacture, we need a scale to drive economies in production that make that option competitive. So we have to look to undeveloped land in order to meet the housing need, but we can do a lot with it as well that you can't do on brownfield land. You mentioned there, Phil, MMC, so that's modern methods of construction. Can you say a bit more about that, actually, in terms of how considerations of sustainable development should influence the construction of housing? In terms of decision making and sustainable development and construction practices, you know, I think that those decisions should be fully focused on on the the outcomes, sustainable outcomes at the start, the middle, and end of any of any construction process. Uh, that's my job, and, and that's what I do. But I think we're gradually uh, approaching the point in in the construction sector where there is a realization that business as usual uh, needs to evolve. We've got a huge challenge to meet and a desperate need for new homes, um, but we absolutely must address the imminent catastrophic threats that are posed by climate change. There's a number of exciting ideas and projects and innovations in the field, one of which I'm working on called Future Proof, which is a whole new financial and delivery model for large scale, multi-tenure, zero emission housing. But it turns the whole business model on its head. It has to look over the whole life cycle of the community in order to secure the same level of returns. But because it takes that longer term view, it can deliver all of those sustainable outcomes as well that we're talking about. So if we start to think about things a little bit more differently with a bit more innovation, I think there's a lot of opportunity to, to achieve all of those sustainable development outcomes that we're, we're so desperately in need of. Unfortunately, I think construction isn't a particularly fast evolving sector. So changing the status quo is going to be largely impossible unless we have substantial regulatory change as well. So a mixed bag, I think, in answer to the question. And you, you mentioned your work in the space and some particular interventions. What is the current state of play in the UK in terms of a broader understanding and application of more sustainable construction practices in housing delivery? That mixed bag continues, I think. Uh, what I have seen since perhaps 2018, 2019, when we put in place our 2050 zero carbon target in legislation, there has been a substantial shift, accelerated perhaps through COP, but there's a lot already happening before that as well. In the 20 or so years I've been doing this, I've never seen such a rapid change in perspective from different sectors of the construction industry, particularly in housing. 
but we that needs to be broken down a little bit. I think we have local authorities who are really grasping the, the nettle on this. They have climate change declaration, climate emergency declaration, stuff that they've got to deal with. Planning is gradually catching up through the plan review process. We are still using building regulations for Part L for energy performance carbon emissions that are 10 years old. That should and could have gone an, an awful lot quicker. Within the sector itself, I think you know there are a host of developers now who are trying to differentiate themselves and, and are really grasping the challenge, uh, differentiating their approach, not just in terms of how they're seen by local planning authorities, but by consumers as well. So there's a lot of movement in the sector, but it's at multiple different paces and uh, it's not a uniform shift towards a sort of zero carbon society. We've talked there around the construction phase. Can we maybe have a bit of a discussion around once homes have been developed, what are the key issues that influence how sustainable they are over the longer term, how that can be best promoted and actually what the key barriers might be to delivering more sustainable development, which we've already touched on to some extent, but I think it'd be interesting to unpack, unpack a bit more. So, Phil, that first question maybe for you around the, the longer term actually usage and occupancy of new homes and how sustainability can be best promoted within that context. Yeah, I, d I don't think the construction industry can and, and should try to legislate for people's long-term sustainable behaviour. But I think what we can do is in designing and specifying new buildings is to facilitate an evolution in people's response to those issues. So making life easier and helping people live in inverted commas, sustainable lifestyles without a great deal of effort. And there's two, perhaps two or three examples that are worth talking about. I think from a design perspective, we could do and be an awful lot more creative and innovative in reshifting focus from the car to the pedestrian. Spaces, I think, now need to be for people. They shouldn't be for vehicles. Um, and that is a key part of the master planning design process. From the second example, perhaps, is, is around heating systems. Either we should be designing and building homes that don't need space heating, or we should be installing uh, systems that become zero emission, zero emission systems over time, uh, effectively taking it out of the hands of the occupier. I think, fundamentally, we are still building houses and specifying gas boilers in buildings in 2022, which is uh, it's crazy, it's bonkers, um, especially when we're not going to be able to buy them in a few years' time. So that, that needs a whole new uh, rethink as well. And I think thirdly, and what we've been doing with SQW and others over the last few years is around the flexibility and adaptability of spaces, both internally and externally within new developments. You know, as a society, we need and you know, individual residents needs and wants and uh, will change over time and spaces need to adapt with them. We don't do that in the UK typically because in practice, there's no real incentive to do so. Once a house is sold, it's sold. It's, it's the occupier's um, issue beyond that point. But I, but I think we can design much more flexible spaces that meet people's needs over a lifetime and, and that will certainly, certainly help. I mean, that chimes exactly with a lot of the work that we've been doing together on, on Future Proof, where we really have started to try and put the sort of consumer at the, at the heart of the question, really, and not only design great buildings, but also really good, high quality places where people want to live. You know, you, you're not going to persuade people to live a sustainable lifestyle if it's not appealing. So actually creating environments that are really appealing, that allow people to live a better, more desirable lifestyle, um, they're prepared to pay for because of obviously the ability to, to charge a premium and, and pay for the sustainability measures is important. 
And um, and we, we want to create places that give people the opportunity to live full, exciting, affluent, but more sustainable lives. Uh, Joe, you, you, one of the questions you asked was about barriers. And if I can just pick up on that for a moment, maybe. So at SQW, particularly with the land and property team, part of the service we offer is around undertaking scheme viability work. And obviously, the ability for a development to be financially viable is critically important here. And we are at the point where modern methods of construction is still more expensive than traditional build. And that's forcing a lot of developers to still hold on to building in bricks and mortar. And one of the ways that we can overcome that is through scale. Um, One of the advantages MMC has is the speed of build and the reduction of overheads. So building at scale and pushing these technologies is really, really important. Another barrier um, that we as a sort of an industry need to cope with is people's perceptions of modern methods of construction. There have been unfortunate building practices, particularly in the post-war era, where some prefabricated buildings have you know, not, not lasted well and are, and are now creating problems. And actually reassuring people that the quality of homes built in factories today is very, very much higher standard and are really high-quality, desirable homes that people should feel confident investing in for the long term. In terms of barriers, I I think we need to be really a lot more innovative in in, in the financial side of things, in in viability. If we're spending more on the product, we have to think about how the financial model works for development. And there's lots going on in that space too. Uh, These things are not mutually exclusive. We can deliver better homes, more sustainable homes, uh, and retain a land value um, that's competitive. So we just need to think a a little bit more differently, I think. That takes us actually very nicely on to my final overarching question, which is what are the key actions that you think policymakers, actors across the housing sector need to take to support sustainable new housing development? Andy, can I ask firstly for your thoughts on that key actions? Sure, sure, of course, Joe. Thank you. Well, there's a few things I would identify. First and foremost, I think, is clarity and consistency in developing planning policy and design standards. Developers and landowners need a level playing field where they know what the rules are, they can design places and buildings to those standards and compete in a fair arena where they know what is expected of them. So they can make long-term investment decisions based on, yes, high-quality standards, but standards that are clear and, and widely understood. So that gets baked into the land value that developers are paying. Another thing that I would identify is around, it comes back to this sort of scale and speed of build. If we're going to make the most of the opportunities afforded by MMC, we have to break the traditional barrier to that, which is that if you sell too quickly, then you can end up suppressing market prices. So we need new forms of tenure, new outlets for developers to release housing stock onto the market without creating problems of oversaturation of the market, swamping the market, and then short-term price depreciation, which again breaks the viability model. And thirdly and finally, the other thing that I think I would ask is is that the public sector really thinks about bringing forward projects that set the bar, breaking new ground, proving new technologies, and providing system capacity that can then be wider adopted by the private sector. And I think that role of, of championing, testing and trialing new technologies is, is, is really important that the public sector takes the lead on that.
I would definitely echo Andy's suggestions. I'll, I'll add a couple as well, if I may. And if indeed politicians are listening to this podcast, one of my biggest pleas would be to provide greater resource to local planning departments to recruit, retain the highest quality people working on behalf of the, you know, the communities that they serve. The planning system can be slow, we know that, but it is democratic, it's evidence-based, um, it performs multiple vital functions, and it's also granted permission for over a million homes, according to the local government association, that still haven't been built. So there is an imbalance. Uh, and this can be frustrating for developers too, and that's in the operational resource in the authority, building capacity and expertise that is retained within local authorities across these issues is hugely important because that can help drive performance in the sector too. If I could choose one other thing and be king for a day, I, I, I think there should probably also be a moratorium nationally on all new development, unless it can be proven to be operationally zero carbon by 2040, but I don't think that's gonna happen. I would like it to. Those would be my suggestions. That would be definitely a major, a major policy decision, a major policy statement to take. But there is definitely a lot of food for thought there for policymakers to think about in terms of taking things forward and uh, supporting more sustainable developments in the future. Phil, Andy, thanks for all of your insights and perspectives today. That's been really, really interesting. Thank you, Joe. It's been really good. And I hope people find this both informative and useful. Thanks, Joe. You're very welcome. Thanks both. I've been speaking to development experts Andy Smith of SQW and Phil Jackson of Dialysis Environmental. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Insight for Impact, the podcast from SQW. To learn more about SQW, our people and our latest thinking, please visit our website at sqw.co.uk. And if you have any further feedback or thoughts on the podcast or would like to suggest a topic for future episodes, please get in touch with us via LinkedIn and Twitter using the handle at SQW.